0: You ever feel stressed out? You ever feel really sad or angry? Well, that's natural, given the world fucking sucks and is terrifying these days. But if you ask your therapist like you're supposed to, they might say some bullshit about mental health and, and taking better care of yourself because a normal human being is supposed to get 8 hours of sleep and drink water. So, are you crazy? Is calling everyone mentally ill a smokescreen for how shitty the world is? Or is the very reasonable other possibility true? That we're all mentally ill because humans are dumb hunks of fuck and mental illness is just another part of having a big complicated brain in a big complicated world? This week on Why Are You Talking About This Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Waitat. I'll be your host, William, and I will be your guide through the wacky world of mental health and mental illness. Which is really appropriate given that I am mentally ill as fuck, and racked with depression, and some form of neurodivergence I cannot begin to comprehend. Yep, it's going to be one of those episodes. But before we get into it, uh, firstly, Happy New Year. Uh, I hope you had a great holiday break and managed to do something cool for yourself. Also, I hope they didn't miss me too much, or were uh, too disappointed that I didn't do something big and special for my one year, because holy shit, did depression blow my ass out harder than I expected. Let me tell you, low vitamin D in the winter is a real fucking killer. But it still is awesome and amazing to me that I have listeners, even at this early point. Uh, And I'm super proud of myself for sticking with a project this work intensive for so long. I don't normally, and it feels good to be able to do something like this. Uh, If you're an early listener, like my two fans in Virginia, it means the world to me to have you here. Thank you so much. Now, before we do get into the show, I do want to ask you guys once again to help release me from my job prison and help me to spread the word about the show. You know, Like, comment, and review the show, because that helps the algorithm stuff. Uh, share with friends, family, frenemies, fuck buddies, enemies, and your nemesis to grow the community. Uh, and make sure to send in emails, tweets, messenger pigeons, and Morse code rocks against my windows to stroke my ego and also call me an idiot that forgot things. Um. Also, I want to give a massive shout out to uh, Cherry City Studios. Uh, they're a local business out of Salem, um, and they make custom t-shirts, stickers, banners, posters business cards, bumper stickers, you know, stuff stuff like that. Um and I had the very first Waytat shirts and a whole lot of bumper stickers uh for Christmas from them. And Ray did an amazing job and from what I hear uh was super nice and awesome the whole way through. So uh shout out to uh Cherry City Studios and to Ray. Uh thank you so much. That means a lot. Uh but with that let's go to the show all right so this episode we're going to be talking about mental health and mental illness and since this is a pretty large topic this is going to be like one of those classic episodes that takes like 15 plus pages to get through actually how many pages do i have 20 20 pages to get through oh boy But, like normal, let's start with a few definitions that we'll absolutely never bring up in this episode again. The first is mental health, which is the emotional, psychological, and social well-being of humans, which affects your feelings, thoughts, and actions, and is the primary measure of how we make choices, relate to others, and handle stressful situations. And it also serves as the foundation for emotions, thought processes, communication, learning, resilience, hope, self-esteem, and other pussy shit. And we all know that real men are supposed to be big, dumb bricks of toxicity until we snap one day and paint the interstate with our internal organs because someone had the audacity to drive a Prius because it reminded us of Michelle. Nah, just kidding. In reality, mental health is extremely important given that it is the key to relationships, your well-being, and contributing and participating in society and communities. And the fact that we continually deny its importance and treat it as Secondary to physical health is total bullshit that we all fall into. Take care of yourselves. It's okay to have a mental health day and to seek help. Now, related to this is mental illness. And these are disorders or occurrences that affect your mental health negatively and affect your thinking, mood, and or behavior. And they cause personal distress or problems functioning in your day-to-day life. And these can be caused for a wide variety of reasons, including life experience, family history, genes, or environmental fact- factors. Also, I think this is a good time to bring up neurodivergence. This is essentially a different way that your brain is wired from a neurotypical brain that may come across as a mental illness, but it's not because it's an innate part of your mental faculties and functioning and doesn't come on suddenly or show up in a pivotal moment of your life. Also, generally, while it does present some problems, uh, like, functionally in your life, you're not more likely to have, like, health problems or concerns because of these. Uh, I just realized I forgot to write that. Um, And the most agreed-upon examples would be, like, dyslexia and its relatives, autism, and ADHD, because those are actually literally just different formation of brain structures. And some argue that lifelong anxiety disorders, depression, OCD, and schizophrenia can also apply as neurodivergence, but is still hotly debated. Others even say that traumatic brain injury can cause a form of neurodivergence, but I personally kinda disagree. And then again, I'm not a brain engineer, so I don't fucking know if it's an accurate thing to say or not, but I'm sure all of you other not brain engineers will have your own thoughts about that. Okay. So where do these things even come from? I mean, we're gonna talk about some common ones soon, but Why did that even happen? Who can I blame for my depression? Society? My mom? God? Well, not really. See, the core of the matter is that we don't know why mental illness happens specifically. But the core concept is that our brains are big, goopy, overflowing, overcomplicated bowls of fat, jelly because jam don't shake like that, and chewed up gum, spit for the mouth of someone who just finished their dip and is trying to cover up the flavor of fuckery. Because anything and everything affects how our brains process and functions, and so when you combine that with all the variables the natural world offers, including largely entropic and random genetic factors, brain chemistry that you just so happen to draw the short straw on, and life events and the time period you were born in, pollution, where you live, and the environment, and toss it all into a blender, no shit, there would be some operational errors. Especially from the perspective of a highly regimented and organized society like what exists in the modern day, in the case of some deficiency, trauma, or brain injury, your brain will attempt to adapt to help you survive better. And sometimes this backfires on you, or the way your brain, or the way your brain decided to survive is really a fucker for your well-being. So now you feel like shit. But again. We don't really know the details. And this is largely the same with NeuroDivergence. But I personally prefer to look at it from a more evolutionary and intentional perspective. Because I need to have systems. Or I start having a meltdown of thinking nothing matters. And God is dead. And our lack of Microsoft Excel killed him. So with something like Dyslexia or Dyscalcula. That. With something like dyslexia or dyscalculia, they happen in creative people pretty often, um, more than people who aren't necessarily creative. So I think that's just kind of their brains, for whatever reason, seeing the bullshit that is written language and deciding to have none of it. Autism usually includes some form of uh, hyperfixation and or a care for systems, and so it's very useful in small-scale organized society to basically keep people on task. Um, well, something like ADHD is very useful because sometimes it's good to have someone who's restless decide to just eh, go for a wander about, and/or you know, while they're out hunting or exploring, not really focus on one thing in particular to keep an eye out for predators. Of course, keep in mind that this is all just uh, set dressing ramblings of a madman found scrawled into a notebook in a uh, shit and blood, so take it with a grain of salt. But with that, let's go deeper into the weeds with mental illness specifically, and we'll start. And we'll start with how to spot it. First, you got to look at risk factors. So first things first, take a look at your genome. You see that scut on the A7 receptor? Yeah, that's going to cause you depression. I mean, all serious. And it's just look at your family's history of mental illness. Did your mom, dad, grandparents on both sides, and two uncles all have crippling depression? Well, congratulations, you probably will too. Also, take a look at your drug and alcohol use and abuse, because that shit fucks up your brain chemistry. Same with anything that changes your hormones or any medical conditions you have that might influence your hormone level or chemical balance. That'll also fuck up your brain. Also, what kind of environment did you grow up in? Was it stable, unstable, rich, poor, next to a nuclear dumping site, or with with lead-based teething circles? All of that will influence your risk of mental illness. Same with trauma and stress. Do you lead a stressful life? Do you have some dark shit you refuse to talk about? Or just things that still bother you? And finally, ask yourself if you're just a big piece of shit. Because your personality can affect the odds of a mental illness. Do you eat your feelings? Are you very sensitive? Do you like pissing people off? All signs of mental illness are something that could end up causing them at some point. So now you might be sitting there pissing your diaper because you're realizing that your entire lifestyle of sitting in a dark room with no natural light, with no friends but podcasts, wearing your knee-high gamer socks while sucking down Red Bulls and edibles because a girl rejected you in the ninth grade, might cause some emotional issues. Let's talk about some other signs. I'll see you look cute, by the way. How about you hit me up? I'm kidding. I'm taken. Uh, Okay. So the first of the early signs is eating or sleeping too much, too little, or irregularly. And, uh, oh shit, that's a call-out for me specifically. Some days I eat like it's the last day on Earth, and other times I eat like a single granola bar in in 48 hours, and I just feel completely fine. And if a regular sleep had an image, I'd be there somewhere. Second is (laughs) sight- Second is self-isolation, and- God damn it. Alright, third is disinterest in usual activities. I mean, kind of? I, I kind of just vaguely hate doing most things. Low to no energy. And, uh, fuck my ass, this is a call-out post. Feeling numb, or like nothing matters, and holy shit, I think I'm reading off my Tinder bio. Unexplained aches and pains, constantly. Feeling helpless or hopeless, Continually. Using more drugs than usual. Eh, I mean, not really. I guess if I had more time, I'd be really fucking up some edibles, though. Feeling unusually confused, forgetful, stressed, angry, upset, worried, or scared. And again, fuck me, that's a call-out. Anytime anything bad happens, my brain spins a wheel with those exact emotions and the void of apathy on it to decide how how to react. Yelling or fighting with people more than usual. Uh, no. No, because I have social anxiety. And next is experiencing persistent mood swings. And I think those last few should probably tell you check. Uh, persistent thoughts and memories you can't escape. Oh, fucky-wucky, that's a bingo. Uh Hearing voices or believing things that aren't true. Well, shit, I'm starting to think I might be mentally ill. Thinking of harming yourselves or others, well, I mean, okay, like, you've heard the show before, so. Uh, and an ability to perform daily tasks. Yeah, goddammit. Now, if you, like me, relate to a lot of these things, and, or, you're starting to get worried and panic, mental illness, just like finding femboys attractive, is nothing to be ashamed of. It's a medical condition that can affect anyone and that modern science still doesn't have an easy time defining or understanding. But the more that we study the field, the more that we understand that this isn't something that has to debilitate your life and can be managed. Sorry, I was reading the quote for Femboys. Uh However, note that a lot of these things are the same with being neurodivergent, which causes the confusion and has caused the literal centuries of dogma. The things like autism are mental illness. And even less than mental illness, neurodivergence is nothing to be ashamed of. So now let's talk about the types. For mental illness, the most common are mood, anxiety, personality, psychotic, eating, trauma, and substance abuse disorders. Mood disorders are periods of persistent and extreme, fluctuating, and oftentimes massively inappropriate re- emotions. And this would include things like depression and bipolar disorder. And I fall into this one, which is why I'm such a cranky bitch. Anxiety disorders are ongoing extreme levels of fear that cause an inability to do things or keep focus and causes acute distress. And this includes social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. I also fall into this one, which is why I'm such a whiny bitch. Personality disorders are a set of personality traits that causes a person with them immense distress to have a hard time or difficulty changing or adapting their behavior or forming positive relationships and This isn't having a shitty personality, which is just being an asshole It's having parts of yourself that feel like it's actively trying to fuck up your entire life and This comes in three flavors or what someone who isn't knuck and fucks will call clusters cluster a are odd or eccentric thoughts and behaviors, like seen in Paranoid Personality Disorder or Schizoid Personality Disorder. Uh, I know someone with Schizoid Personality Disorder. That is weird sometimes. Um, I'll, I'll say the piece real quick. The short of it is that Schizoid Personality Disorder is that some part of your brain tells you a lie, and just immediately you entirely accept that into your worldview. So, like, there will be times where just, out of nowhere, she'll believe something. Like, just, boom. Like, this is the truth now. And no matter what evidence exists, that is the truth. Um, yeah. I, I don't interact with her very often, but I, whew, I can imagine that, that gets scary sometimes. Uh, So cluster B are unstable emotions and dramatic or impulsive behaviors, which includes borderline personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder, also called sociopathy. Um, Also an interesting thing with uh, BPD, it overlaps a lot with having both anxiety and depression um, and also overlaps with a lot of other uh, mental illnesses. So it's kind of common. Like there's a period of time where like, Half to three quarters of the mentally ill people that I knew had, like, were convinced they had B, uh, borderline personality disorder, including me, because it was just like everything lined up. Uh, most of us have like gotten help since and realized, like, yeah, no, that's probably not BPD. That's just being a whiny, cranky bitch. Uh, and cluster C are anxious and fearful thoughts and behavior, which would include avoidant personality disorder or dependent personality disorder. Psychotic disorders are distorted awareness and thinking, most commonly being hallucinations, but also commonly including delusions. Uh, most well-known is schizophrenia, which, oh, that runs in my family, so yay. Uh, Moving past that, we also have eating disorders, which are unhealthy obsessions with eating, exercise, body shape, and other combinations of food and body weight obsessions like anorexia or even something as simple-ish as body dysmorphia or body dysphoria. Trauma-related disorders are disorders that occur due to traumatic events like PTSD. And finally is substance abuse disorders, which is drug dependency and addiction. I mean, basically, every mental illness is going to be in one of those categories. Neurodivergence, neurodivergence, on the other hand, doesn't fit into little, neat categories, largely because it's still being studied, but we can go over the big three real quick. Beginning with dyslexia, dyscalculia, and its many, many possible siblings. This is a learning disability that causes people to have difficulty doing math, or reading, or what have you, because they have a hard time decoding between the speech sounds, concepts, and the symbols used to represent them. This also has zero to do with someone's intelligence or mental capabilities, despite the fact that it seems like most people think someone with dyslexia is dumb. They aren't, they just aren't buying into this whole written language bullshit like a fucking Chad. Anyways, the symptoms, anyways, the symptoms and signs are broken down by age groups. Oh, and this is for dyslexia, but for dyscalculia, you can replace words or reading with numbers or math, and it's basically the same thing. So for young children before school age, this would include things like late talking, learning new words slowly, confusing words for each other and having a hard time forming words correctly, difficulty naming letters, colors, or numbers, and difficulty in rhyming games. For school age kids, it's reading below reading level for their age, Difficulty processing was heard, difficulty answering questions, uh, problems remembering sequences, and uh, in f- and uh, difficulty in similarities and differences in letters and words, uh, the inability to sound out familiar words or with spelling, uh, unusually long time to do reading or writing, and avoiding reading. Now, no, and this is something that I don't think a lot of grade school teachers are going to... Willingly line up to admit. But some of those might also just be having a shitty teacher. Like the last one. Like I know when I was in grade school. I didn't read at school a lot because I was told exactly one time that I shouldn't read in class and I took that personal. And then guess which teacher asked my mom if I had dyslexia or was autistic about two weeks later. Okay, my own grapes aside. For teens and adults, the symptoms are difficulty reading, slow and laborious reading and writing, problems spelling, avoiding reading, mispronouncing, or difficulty recalling words or names, unusually long times to do reading or writing, difficulty summarizing, trouble learning languages, uh, difficulty with math, and difficulty with math word problems. Which I think all still lines up. But if you're getting ready to be judgmental, still. So let me huck this brick of honesty into your skull real quick, because 20% of all human beings on the fucking planet Earth are dyslexic. So if you start being a dickhole to dyslexics, good chance you're being a dickhead to one in five people you know. And also, you know, prepare to get your ass beat by a lot of people. Assuming that they can find your address. Sorry, I I also know someone with dyscalculia. Uh, I had to cast kind of through. <laughs> Look, we're all mentally ill, and we all have we all have neurodivergencies. Okay, just okay. So now autism, which is actually fairly rare compared to dyslexia, making up about three percent of all children and two percent of adults, which is still a lot, but it's nothing near dyslexia. Notably, too, this number is still going up. And no, it's not because of the liberal pansy bullshit or vaccines making your child better than you in every possible measure and you having an issue with that. It's because our understanding of autism is expanded to the point where you could probably just point randomly to a crowd of people and they would probably have a touch of the tism. Uh, this is also a moment to call Autism Speaks a Bunch of Cunts. Why? Well, because they continuously... Speak over autistic people to recommend things that don't help or that actively hurt autistic people. Uh, but definitely virtue signal that they are trying to help, which they aren't. Uh, platform people with autistic children that don't seem to understand or like their kids. And even, I, I read also in one case, like, tried to have their kid killed because that would have been easier for them to deal with. Anyways, uh ignore adults with autism just entirely, uh, seem bent on quote-unquote curing autism like it's a fucking disease using the ABA method, which is about 30-plus uh, hours of therapy a week for a fucking child, acting like autism is the boogeyman that's coming for your your kid, even comparing it to fucking AIDS and leukemia, and they also don't care about autistic children and are instead really bent out of shape on making their parents look like fucking saints for not killing their child in their crib. So autism speaks can fuck itself in the mouth to death and then go to hell and choke on some warcock. Anyways <laughs> Autism itself is really complicated but can be divided into two sets of symptoms. Also I'm gonna apologize so I that gets me like so instantly angry, people being rude to someone who's autistic Because I used to work as a DSP for people who were, like, very, very high-needs autistic. And, like, most of the time, they were so fucking nice to everyone. And people were such pieces of shit to them. And it made me fucking angry. And also, I have a lot of, well not a lot. I have a few people in my life that are high functioning autistic and oh my god the amount of times I've wanted to like scalp a Karen because of shit that they've said. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> who <Whew>. See see <laughs> see what I mean from earlier of like the one of the symptoms is promoting violence? Um any- <laughs> Anyways, uh, so autism itself is really complicated and can be divided into two sets of symptoms. The social symptoms are having decreased sharing of interests, especially for someone of, like, your particular age group, uh, difficulty appreciating and understanding people's emotions, aversion to eye contact, lack of proficiency in nonverbals, stilted or scripted speech, uh, interpreting the abstract as literal, and difficulty making or keeping friends. And all of the other symptoms are inflexible behavior, difficulty coping with change, expecting others to be as interested in things as they are, sound difficulty tolerating change or new experiences, sensory <laughs> sensory hypersensitivity, stimming, which is like calming movements or sounds, and arranging things in particular manner in a particular manner. Now, if you are thinking oh fuck, I'm autistic, stop for a second. Keep in mind that a lot of these things can be caused by mental illness and other forms of neurodivergence. For example, for me personally, a lot of my, like, autism-esque traits come from the crippling levels of depression I carry every day paired with an intense paranoia and anxiety about literally everyone and everything. My primary coping strategies look a lot like autism, Especially because, like, there's times where I stim and it changes, like, almost weekly what thing calms me down. Now, do I think that I have a touch of the tism? I mean, probably. I was doing some of these things well before I was so cripplingly depressed. So I probably do have a low level of autism that's just been accentuated by two decades of strangers pretending they know me like that. And me not giving them the good old uh, sock and soap treatment. Okay. And finally, we have ADHD, which is a condition that affects somewhere between 8.4 to 9.8% of all children and 2 to 5% of adults, depending on who you ask. And this is a condition that is marked by difficulty paying attention, hyperactivity, and, impulse- and impulsiveness, which again feels like a call out post. And this has two types with their own symptoms. The inattentive type, don't pay close attention to details, make careless mistakes, have problems staying focused on tasks or activities, they don't listen when spoken to, don't follow instructions or complete tasks, they have organizational problems, avoid or dislike tasks that require sustained mental effort, often lose things, are easily distracted, and forget about daily tasks. And this feels like a massive fucking call-out. Also, it sounds like gifted could also, this sounds like gifted kid burnout. Maybe the two are related. Uh, the other type is hyperactive or impulsive type. And they fidget and squirm. They can't stay seated. They run or climb it's inappropriate. They're unable to have quiet leisure time. They're always on the go. They talk too much. Uh, blurt out answers before a question is finished. They have difficulty weighing their turn. And they interrupt or intrude on others. And... I gotta say, if ADHD is my flavor of neurodivergence, why didn't I get the fun one? Why do I have the one that makes it hard to do things or focus instead of the one that makes me energetic as shit? Although I guess I probably wouldn't have the same hobbies I do. A lot of nerd hobbies you really need to, like, sit in place for a while. Okay, so with all that covered, what's the big deal? Why should I, a totally sane man with zero empathy for other human beings, care about this? Well, firstly, set the fuck down, right-wing pundit of the week. I won't even humor you by calling you out by name. Recovering this from the personal shit first. Firstly, people with depression alone are 40% more likely to develop cardiovascular and metabolic disease, and twice as likely from serious mental illness. Also, 33.5% of all U.S. adults with mental illness have substance abuse disorders. And the... Number one cause of hospitalization in the U.S. for people under 18 are due to depressive disorders and nearly 600,000 adults per year. Now, I group these together because it's, one, sad and depressing, but also because all of that is a strand of the medical system. Which, if you're a shit-ass whose mom is ashamed of you and only care about the economy, is expensive. Also, I hope you fall for another crypto scam, you fuck. Okay. Now also, 7.4% of people with mental illness are unemployed, compared to 4.6% of people without one. And on top of this, a high schooler with, a high schooler with depression is twice as likely to drop out, and students with a mental illness are three times more likely to repeat a grade. 21.1% of all homeless people in the U.S. have a serious mental illness, and 8.4 million people in the U.S. that care for someone with mental health problems spend about 32 weeks 32 hours a week to provide care if you add that in with all the lost work low productivity and low quality performance caused by mental illness and that costs us about 193.2 billion dollars per year in the u.s. alone or one trillion dollars worldwide oh and also for those of you who are uh, about to pretend to care about veterans and then say mental illness isn't real 19.7% Nineteen point seven percent of vets have a mental illness, and nine point six percent of active service duty members have a mental health disorder. Also, I will say because uh, I I don't know people who are currently in the military very closely personally, I have seen so much like military culture shit. There's no way about half those motherfuckers do not have substance abuse disorder. Uh, so, don't just pretend to give a shit about veterans, and then say mental health isn't real. Okay. But, no matter how you cut it, it's, this is a a problem, and mental health is serious. So, before we talk more about how things are now, let's talk about the past. Alright, and once again, starting in humanity's ancient past. Uh, we don't find that humanity is actually very good at this whole mental health thing. I mean, who knew that during the time period where death was lurking around every corner and nothing made sense and it was all mad dash constantly to not die would be stressful. But because we didn't really understand how it worked, we attributed mental illness to everything from just being an asshole to possession to curses to vengeful spirits and gods. Which meant that, a lot of the time, the solutions were usually based on mysticism or shaming including things like prayers and atonement, exorcism, incantations, or offering sacrifices, or me, in some cases, just beating the shit out of you until you decide to stop being mentally ill. Or another solution, since the demons live in your brain and are, uh, trapped in there because the thickest bone in the human body is stopping them from getting out, you could drill a goddamn hole in your head. This process, called trepanation, Starts up around 5,000 BC, and this was and is still sometimes used for medical purposes as well. While it was used in the treatment of mental illnesses and curses by letting the badness escape through the hole in your fucking head, medically it was useful to help with brain swelling, because a lot of damage, because a lot of the damage caused from brain swelling is your brain getting crushed up against your skull. So if Uchaga got blasted in the head with a rock. You drill a hole in there so that when his brain swells, it doesn't get crushed against a skull and instead, like, like, pops out the top. Uh, yeah, nasty. Uh, but a lot of people survived this, and we found elderly skulls with trepanation holes. Like skulls from people who died of old age with a trepanation hole. And today, we still do it for things like skull fractures, brain injuries, migraines, and sometimes, in unbelievably rare circumstances, some mental illnesses. And for all of these, it's not really as a therapy or a cure itself, but it's like an exploratory procedure or a way to relieve pressure that might be causing issues. Anyways, in 2700 BC, traditional Chinese medicine begins to develop in the ways that we would know it today beginning with the development and implementation of the concept of positive and negative bodily energy flows, or yin and yang, which introduces the idea that mental illness can be caused by lack of balance between the two forces, meaning a lot of treatments were meant to restore this balance. And in 1900 in the West, we, well, in 1900 BC, I should say, in the West, we developed the concept of hysteria, a made-up mental illness, by the way, the Mesopotamians and Egyptians believed that this disease was caused by a woman's uterus deciding abdomen, cringe, and moving around the body of its own accord, which that's that doesn't happen. Although, if you remember from the uh uh sex and sexuality episode, the uh, uterus can move like up to six inches upwards into the body cavity <laughs> if a woman is aroused. Uh, so I mean that. I mean, that's kind of hysteria, but like that's like the good kind of hysteria. <laughs> Anyways, um, what were the symptoms of hysteria? Well, depression, irritability, st- stubbornness, and not doing what your husband wants you to do. Uh, also, the name hysteria comes from the Greeks because the Greeks in their time really, really took to it, given the whole like women are icky, we should only fuck men thing that they had going on. Uh, but continuing with the Egyptians, in the sixth century BC, they wrote the first books on mental illness. A pair of medical papyri that suggested treating mental illness with recreation activities like music, dancing, and painting to help relieve the symptoms and to work towards some sense of normality. In the same document, they made the wild, wild fucking claim that the brain was the center of mental functioning. Oh, fucking insane, right? however for much of the world mental health and mental illness was still largely spiritual and it was also in ancient egypt but they had ways to cure it that didn't need a priest and between the 5th and 3rd centuries bc things started changing in europe but for europe specifically uh, i mostly focus on europe for the research here cuz otherwise you would fucking be here all day uh with philosophers and physicians pushing away from the idea of it being spirits and instead leaning into the disease model. Hippocrates said the mental illness were from natural occurrences in the body, in particular, our old friend, the four humors, which meant that at the time and for centuries afterwards, the best treatments for mental illness were things that balance the humors, meaning laxatives, emetics, which are meant to make you throw up, leeches, bloodletting, cupping, and yes, enemas. Also, herbal remedies on specialized diets that match the dry, hot, wet, and cold matrix used for the four humors a lot. And that system remained up through the Middle Ages. Um, also, I, I, do wanna, uh, I, I do want to... I do want to... just give you an example, because I thought of one today, and I think it's fucking ridiculous. So one of the one of the combinations was melancholic which is if you have too much black bile in your body black bile get expelled gets expelled in poop however black bile is also cold and wet very important keep that in mind so one of the cures you could do is you could shit your brains out like you wouldn't fucking believe to cure your depression which I gotta say, no it doesn't. No it fucking doesn't. Um, another option was the doctor could stick a tube up your ass and pump water into your intestines. I can't imagine that would work, uh, unless you're a real fucking freak. Um, but, the other thing that they could do is they could prescribe you a like a, an herb that negates... Cold and wet, which would mean dry and hot, like cinnamon. <laughs> so just eat some fucking cinnamon, you sad bitch. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I just yeah, I thought of that example today, <laughs> it's just funny that like the the only ways that we knew how to cure depression under the four humor system was either eat this raw piece of cinnamon stick or let me stick something up your butt, (laughs) which, uh, if you try that as a pickup line, let me know how it goes, Um, however, uh, during the medieval period, uh, in Europe, East Asia, parts of Mesoamerica, the Middle East, and parts of Africa, where familial honor and societal organization were extremely important, and sticking things up your ass wasn't, Uh, Mental illness became something to be ashamed of and as humiliating or as a divine punishment. Much like something being shoved up your ass. Uh. (laughs) (sighs) Let me me center. Center. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And the stigma meant that a lot of people with mental illnesses ended up under the care of their family, often ending up in cellars or attics, abandoned on the streets, being locked away, given to convents, sold off as slaves or servants, which, I mean, what's the difference in this time period? Or placed in the workhouses. Again, basically like slavery. And again, a lot of times when a physician didn't or couldn't help, clergy would often perform prayers or rituals to help these people. And while they rarely, if ever, helped, it was a lot more humane than just abandoning them under the streets or locking them up. And to provide some help, the first ever mental hospital was found in Baghdad in either 705 or 792. And most sources say one, but not the other. But most sources say one or the other, but never both. So not exactly sure which not exactly sure which, but it was built on the back of our old buddy, Ibn Cena, who has been mentioned, I, I, I think, like three episodes now. So he might be like a recurring, recurring character. And almost exactly 700 years later, in 1406, the first European psychiatric hospitals are founded in Valencia, Spain. And this, despite how it sounds, is actually a bad thing because the patients there lived in squalid, inhumane conditions with horrific levels of abuse. They'd basically just be locked up somewhere with nothing to do and no treatment because it was more important to prevent whatever risk they prevented to society than to help them. At around nearly the same time is a belief that would remain in public consciousness until the 1600s. that people who were mentally ill were being punished for making pacts with Satan which sets back our route to empathic care by literal centuries. However, by the 15th century and continuing to the 18th century, psychiatric hospitals began to introduce some forms of therapy. Which again, sounds like a good thing, but isn't. Because this included threats, straitjackets, physical restraints, drugs, loud noises for some fucking reason, gyrating chairs that shook so hard it knocked people out, dousing people dousing patients in cold or hot water, forcing you to vomit and bloodletting. And, mind you, this isn't a time where hysteria was still considered a disease. I Meaning if you're a woman that's very reasonably depressed, that you live in a little German town with an abusive husband that could lock you up. They could lock you up, say your uterus is swimming around near your spinal cord, and then put you in the Pussy Shaker 5000 until you pass out, and then they throw ice water on you. And then just lock you up against the wall. And they can just keep doing that for years. Fucking cool. Although I bet some of you sick, nasty freaks out there would pay for that experience. Uh, But all of that begins to change in 1792, when Philippe Pinel, the founder of the Moral Treatment, develops a hypothesis that patients need care and kindness to improve their conditions. I mean, who fucking knew, right? But once he introduced this, uh, he focused on reforms, including taking over a hospital in southern Paris and introducing liberal pussy bullshit like fresh air, sunlight, clean rooms, exercise, quality care with actual certified workers, and kindness. What a fucking pansy. Four years later, since the Brits can't come up with anything themselves, they create the York Retreat, which is run by Quakers. And this retreat is a treatment facility that is run less like a prison and more like a strict household, which is actually really helpful. The patients had rules and supervision, but enough freedom to regain independence, uh, simple rewards and punishments instead of torture, and encouragement to meditate on their actions and feelings and learn how to present a civil and polite face, which hey, sounds sounds pretty good overall. I mean, sure, like it's whitewashed a little bit because, like, holy shit, back then, uh, in general, kind of sucked. But still, uh, and then by 1883, Emil, Crom- Crom- Emil Kraplin, try. I was really trying not to say crappin'. Kraplin, Kraplin. <laughs> I'm sorry, Uh, publishes a comprehensive set of psychological disorders centered around symptoms rather than just treating the symptoms without really caring about the root cause. I wonder what you would say about me. Uh, And things are really looking up. So, what changes? Well, in the late 1800s, due to cost, lower rates of success than advertised, uh, lowered funding, fears that patients would become too dependent on the staff, and public disillusionment in general with mental health, the moral treatment died. Around the same time, Freud, that motherfucker, developed psychoanalysis. I almost said psychoanalyst. Freudian slip. Which is a process of talking cures and free association, encouraging patients to talk about whatever comes to mind and leads the psychoanalyst to finding repressed memories, thoughts, and instincts that cause the instabilities that cause a mental illness in the first place. And this takes off insanely fast and becomes massively popular. I mean, in part because it looks really effective and is also a great little party trick for Victorians to use on their friends. Like why Tarot was popular at the time. But by the mid 1900s, this goes the same way as moral treatment because it's not really verifiable or falsifiable. Which you remember, the science episode is very important in science. However, even up to 2012, up to a quarter of all active psychiatrists still used it, and that, that that's not like that's not like them like using it instead of uh, medical treatment. That's them using it to like figure stuff out about. And then we reach World War I, where the important thing to understand about mental health and mental illness from this period is how much it gets thrust in the mainstream public zeitgeist. Because you basically have the previous generations seeing mental illness as a sign that you are a fucked up, coward, immoral, piece of shit. And then you have people who've fought on the front lines, people who care about mental illness, and also people who are objectively right that it was an actual disease and forefront amongst these is shell shock, which we now call PTSD. After the war, in light of these changing ideas and the fact that we were still balls deep in the heroic age of medicine, we became obsessed with curing mental illness, including the popularity of psychosurgery in the 1930s, which included lobotomy, which was cutting away of the nerves within the frontal lobe and other parts of the brain. In 1938, electroshock therapies developed in Italy, by Yugo Cerletti and Lucio Bini, uh, successfully curing a man of his schizophrenia. Supposedly, at least. Schizophrenia is complicated. But this method proved to be extremely popular and nominally effective. But why? Well, because electroshock, by sending electrical currents through your brain, is essentially like a hard reset. creates a momentary seizure that can rewrite brain chemistry and synaptic links. And... Across most of the world, this is abandoned fairly quickly because of the immense agony it causes. Um, it, it's still used sometimes nowadays. Uh, some people with, like, major depressive disorder swear by it. Um, I And I understand where they're coming from. Um, I'm just never going to do that, because that sounds fucking terrifying. Uh, but before we head over to America, the drug lithium in 1949 is developed by Australian psychiatrist John Cade, and is used as a mood stabilizer, which basically forever changes how we treat mental illness. Okay, so the U.S. And we begin in the early 1800s, when the moral method reaches our shores for the first time. And yes, that's how long we were doing the other methods, and you wonder why we're bad at taking our mental health into account. But we embrace this method really fast, seeing it as a way to address the needs of society, individuals, and business. And because of this, we start, to, we start to consider rehabilitation, recovery, and reintegration into society for the first time. And like with the rest of the world, there's some really big promises going on here. But in order to pursue it, a lot of mental health facilities make their, pa- make their patients participate in crafts, manual labor, religious study, and intellectual pursuits to better prepare them for society. And in 1843, the term mental hygiene is first coined by William Sweetser, the American term for mental health that is used for a very long time. And just like everywhere else, by the late 1800s, we abandoned this methodology because it's not super effective and our system still sucks a horse dick. But even as the system begins to fall apart, Dorothy Dix, haha, uh, begins to lead reform efforts against an underfunded, unregulated system with a highly regulated, Carefully controlled, expertly staffed, and well-funded asylum system. Yeah, unfortunately for her legacy and also the uh, very, very old meaning of the term asylum, uh, this quickly falls apart. As these places were built, they quickly became overcrowded. Uh, It was hard to find good staff and mismanagement was an epidemic almost immediately. And this caused terrible conditions, horrific abuse, and massive amounts of filth and uncleanliness, as well as worsening conditions for most, if not all, patients. But people still noticed the writing on the wall, including Adolf Meyer, yikes on the first name there, who was convinced that our reliance on industrialization and urbanization had ruined our human potential, our adaptivity, and our constructive capacity, and was in part, the cause for the failing and overcrowded asylum system. Well, you know, in my opinion, he's fucking right. And I have to say, in my opinion, because sometimes I remember that this is supposed to be a non-biased political show. Uh, so he pushed for asylum reform alongside his other social reforms. Unfortunately, the system's already too fucked, and the asylum system resists reformation for decades. In 1890, 18- in 1892, in addition to sailing the ocean blue, the APA is founded at the University of Pennsylvania, and the following year, Isaac Ray, the founder, defines mental hygiene as, quote, <coughs> the art of preserving the mind against all incidents and influences, calculated to deteriorate its qualities, impair its energies, or derange its movements. The management of the bodily powers in regard to exercise, rest, food, clothing, and climate, the laws of breeding... The government of the passions, the sympathy with current emotions and opinions, the discipline of the intellect, all of these come with the province of mental hygiene. Which, for being really old, is surprisingly accurate to modern expertise on mental illness. Also, stop being a pervert. He meant breeding isn't like genealogy, not breeding is like, <laughs> you know. Also, it's almost like not everyone was fucking stupid back in the old days. Alright, and then we have 1908's Clifford Beers, who after being released from an asylum and backed by William James and Adolf Mayer, publishes his book, A Mind That Found Itself, and was funded for its inclusion of how important mental hygiene is and how to implement it in a wider society. Also, the Connecticut Society for Mental Hygiene writes an article that commits them to go into war against the conditions and style of living that produce mental health disorders. And this includes pl- programs and legislation to pursue preventative efforts to reduce the long-time asylum populations. Parts of this also focuses on finding causes through research, particularly in the fields of biology and life history, or what we would call now is genealogy. And then we jump forward 33 years to 1941, when the U.S. first implements electroshock treatment at McLean Hospital in Massachusetts. Something that mind, three years ago, was just invented and was quickly abandoned by the world for being too cruel. In 1938, I wonder what the fuck else was happening in 1938 that might be considered cruel. Uh, That America still hadn't abandoned. Uh, And quickly, this developed into being just a straight-up threat. Which meant that in a lot of facilities, this became a means of executed control and for torture. And by 1943, there is a single hospital in a single year that had 1,443 electroshock treatments. However, with the introduction of the DSM-1 in 1952 and the introduction of antipsychotics in 1954, there is at least some hope for improvement as both cut down rates of institutionalization. However, abuse is still rampant and there are a ton of asylums. Until 1963, when JFK signs the, and have mercy on me, please for the love of God, don't cancel me, uh, Mental Retardation Facilities and Community Mental Health Centers Construction Act, which works towards deinstitutionalizing and the funding and building of other forms of support. In 1968, the DSM-2 is published, reworded, and reprinted to better fit the new understanding of mental health. And following six years later, the DSM is edited to remove homosexuality. Yeah, you heard me right. Being gay was considered a mental illness in the United States until 1974. And six years after that, we get the dsm 3 which introduces a pair of axes of classification that took the individual into account instead of just problematic behavior. One and two were the clinical diagnoses like intellectual disability and personality disorders. Uh, three and four were relevant medical conditions and psychosocial-slash-environmental stressors. And five is an assessment of a patient's functioning, which is a huge forward leap in classifying and treating mental illness, given that there's a whole lot more to treatment than just telling someone they're, de- they're depressed and then smacking them across the man titties and telling them to man up. And then we have the dsm four in 1994 and the dsm five in 2013 the dsm4 removed a lot of stuff from being a mental illness and moved around some classifications while the dsm5 removed the subtypes of autism and schizophrenia while changing some of the diagnostic processes um also one of them i wish i wrote it down i don't remember which uh one of them removed um the term gender dysphoria from the dsm cuz gender dysphoria used to be in the dsm and, it, and it's not anymore um that was uh, being trans. So that also used to be considered mental illness. Um, also by 1994 the process of deinstitutionalization reduced the number of people in asylums, mental hospitals and involuntary commitment to massive lows. Wait hear I me mean, that sounds good, right? Well but again no, it's not really. Well yes it's good in the sense I got people out of an abusive institution. It's bad because there's no, no fallout plan. A lot of people were just dumped on the streets or maybe given a ticket for a Greyhound bus, which meant that most of the people in asylums just ended up homeless. And combined with a lack of public mental health infrastructure and rising costs of housing and the rising occurrence of mental illness, we've only seen these problems grow. But we'll get to that more in the future. The future is now, old man. Okay, so before we really talk about some of the details, who's affected? Well, 12.5% of the world's population has some sort of mental illness. And of them, 301 million people worldwide have anxiety, 280 million are depressed, 40 million have bipolar disorder, 24 million have schizophrenia, and 14 million have an eating disorder. I want you to think about that. Almost as many people as there are in the U.S. have anxiety alone. But I know you just want to talk about the U.S. because you're an marabou pervert. So, in the U.S., an average of 20% of adults and 16.5% of youths between the ages of 6 and 17 have a mental health disorder. I mean, fuck yeah, America. Of that, 47.2% of them have received treatment within the last year. For serious mental illnesses... Only 5.5% of adults have it, and 65.4% are seeking treatment. Which, hey, that's really fucking good, but let's get that number up to 100%, how about that? Also, 8.5% of adults have substance abuse disorder, aka addiction. And keep in mind that about half of lifelong mental illness starts to show itself by 14, and 75% of them show themselves by 24. Meaning, hey, if you're 25 or older, it's probably not going to get too much worse up there in that brain case. Probably. Breaking it down on the icky-sticky gender binary, 27.2% of women have a mental illness and 7% have a serious one, compared to 18.1% of men, or 4% with a serious mental illness. And while at first you might be confused by this discrepancy or might be thinking some sexist shit, keep in mind that the U.S. is not a safe place for women. Not the most dangerous in the world, but... That's not really an award that you can have on a plaque. So it still makes sense to me that this rate is pretty high. However, it is also a lot more common for women to actually, you know, telling someone that they're having a hard time instead of the first indication being them showing up at a white power rally, shooting up a school, or painting a wall with themselves, or sometimes all three of those things in that order. And that's supported by who seeks treatment. Women do 51.7% of the time, jumping to 67.6% of the time for a serious condition, uh, compared to men who seek help 40% of the time or 61.3% of the time when it gets real bad. Going by age, 33.7% of young adults, uh, 18 to 25, 28.1% of adults, uh, 26 to 49, and 15% of seniors, 50 plus, are mentally ill. Uh, which makes sense because when you're young, your brain chemistry is more fucky wucky but also the youth of today are more willing to say that they have a problem. Forty-four point six percent of the youth seek help, forty-eight point one percent of adults, and forty-seven point four percent of seniors do. Which again makes sense because a lot of youth are poor or have very little power, and even when they can, they have a habit of not taking. And even when they can, we have a habit of not taking care of ourselves because there's just. Reflex that the suffering is the part of the world that the adults are hiding from you and is the truth and everything sucks and it's totally not, st- not stress induced self-flagellation. Adults and seniors, on the other hand, have the wisdom to know that suffering on principle, while it is a moral victory, is stupid. When you get to serious mental illness, youths have it 11.4% of the time, 7.1% of adults do, and 2.5% of seniors. Which again, makes sense. And the treatment numbers go up as well, with 57.9% of youths, 67% of adults, and 71% of seniors seeking help. And finally is race. And for this I decided to look at the two highest, then the lowest. So for the highest, 34.9% of multiracial people are mentally ill, followed closely by Native Americans at 26.6%. Now before you get too racist there, Grandpa, Keep in mind that race is very touchy, but it's constantly touched in the U.S. Meaning someone who's multiracial is getting even more constantly bombarded by racist bullshit than your average black family living in a nice neighborhood. And I'm going to be honest with you, with all the shit we've put Native Americans through, not only am I surprised that they are in a constant state of righteous rage, but it's only 26.6%. The lowest in the U.S. is Asians at 16.4%. Why? They don't talk to anyone. If you've read anything from an Asian American writer and their relationship with either their parents or their grandparents, you know that strained is a generous way to describe that relationship. Oftentimes, there's massive expectations put on the children of immigrants, especially so for Asian immigrants. And that generational trauma can mean underreporting. Now, for serious mental illness it's the same lineup but a different order so it's 9.3 percent of native americans 8.2 percent of people who are multiracial and 2.8 percent asian let's uh let's also take a look at the justice the justice systems treatment of mental illness if you're going "Uh uh-oh that's the right reaction because every year two million people with mental illness are put in jail with 37 percent of federal prison inmates and 44 percent of local jail inmates having a mental illness. And this jumps up to 66% of women in prison, and of all of those, 4,000 a year are held in solitary confinement, which is a a fucked up thing to do already. But to then put someone with something like schizophrenia or severe depression in a poorly lit room with nothing to do and no other people is fucking awful. Uh, And for kids, it's worse, since 70% of the kids in juvie have mental health conditions and are 10 times more likely to suffer psychosis. but if you're a true red-blood American and don't care about children, women, or the downtrodden suffering, you're sure as hell going to pretend to give a shit about veterans, you fucking scumbag. 50,000 veterans a year are held in jail, 55% of them with a mental illness of some kind. Oh, and also, one in four people that get shot by police have a mental illness. Maybe we shouldn't use cops for everything, huh? Almost like that was part of the point of the police episode. Okay, and before we get back to the haha's and the call-outs, we do need to cover something rough real quick. So, this is your trigger warning for suicide. Uh, skip forward a bit if you don't want to hear it. Take care of yourself. So, suicide is the number two cause of death for people between the ages of 10 and 14 years old, which is chilling. Uh, and it's the number three cause of death for people between 15 and 24. Uh, In the U.S. overall, it's the 12th most common cause of death, with 46% of all people who kill themselves having a mental illness and 90% showing symptoms beforehand. 4.8% of all Americans are at high risk, but 13% of young adults, 22% of high schoolers, and 45% of the LGBTQ plus community are at high risk. 79% of all people who kill themselves are men, and trans adults are 9 times more likely to attempt it. And all of this is important to say, because if I don't tell you that mental health is important, and mental illness can literally cause your death, I'd feel like I'd be leaving the door open for people to ignore that message, or assume that they'll figure out a way around it. So let me be clear, the people suffering are real people at real risk. If you're one of them, you need to get professional help. Not because you're weak, but because you deserve it. Even if you don't think you do, you do. Okay, safe to come back now. Uh, with that talked about, let's get into the most common conditions in the U.S. Ignoring substance abuse disorder, which would otherwise be number three, and that's mostly because we've done an episode already on uh, on drugs, and we talked about addiction there, so I wanted to talk about something like entirely new. Um, The top ten most common, in order, would be anxiety, major depressive disorder, PTSD, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and schizophrenia. And looking at the top three most common, and so let's look at the top three most common, because these are the most likely for you to encounter, and the most likely for you to actually have. Anxiety disorders are a group of related conditions with unique symptoms, uh, but all have one thing in common a persistent, crushing fear or worry in circumstances that aren't otherwise a threat. And the symptoms are broken down into two groups mental and physical. For the mental symptoms, you have feelings of dread and or apprehension, feeling tense or jumpy, being irritable or restless, anticipating the worst, and being watchful for signs of danger. Which is again, huge call out post for me. I'm constantly barraged with feelings of dread, I get restless easily, I'm a cranky bitch, and I always assume that shit's about to go fuck wise. The fig- <laughs> the physical, the physical symptoms would be shortness of breath, pounding or racing heart so much that I'm on fucking heart pills. Sweating, tremors, twitching Fuck yeah. Headaches, oh my god, fatigue, insomnia upset stomach, and frequent shitting and pissing. Now, if you're suddenly anxious that so you have an anxiety disorder, that might be a sign to get checked out. But also keep in mind, being afraid or anxious doesn't mean you have a disorder. It means you're a human being. I mean, after all, I mean, we are, after all, a lump of fat capable of having anxiety about abstract concepts that don't exist in nature and that no other animal could even consider as a factor. Like, if you have a meeting at 4 o'clock that you're stressed and worried about, a fucking ape in the jungle has no fucking idea what a meeting or what time is. They don't give a shit. Uh, We're the only animal that gives a shit about both of those things. But why do these disorders exist, and why isn't it just one? Well, for why it's not just one, it's because these disorders tend to be pretty specific. Like someone with social anxiety disorder might not have much of a problem with day-to-day tasks as long as they don't have to talk to someone. Someone with generalized anxiety disorder will have the same level of anxiety kind of regardless of the situation. Or someone with panic disorder might be fine most of the time but then have sudden panic attacks where they enter into an intense and unexpected state of pure terror and shock for next to no reason repeatedly. As to why it happens, we don't exactly know. But we do know that has something to do with the fear response being an overdrive. I know, fucking incredible strides in science, huh? We do know, however, that living a stressful life, living in environments with a lot of sound, high activity, and intensity can exasperate it, and it tends to run in the family. Uh, and also, these disorders affect about 19.1% of all Americans. Alright, so now major depressive disorder. This is a mood disorder that causes persistent feelings of sadness, despair, and a loss of interest or purpose. And Jaegers has a call-out. So the symptoms are feelings of sadness, fearfulness, emptiness, or hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Outbursts of anger, irritability, or frustration. Ah. Loss of interest in things you normally enjoy. Sleep disturbances. Uh, Tiredness and lack of energy appetite and weight fluctuations, anxiety, agitation, or restlessness, slow thinking, speaking, and movement, feelings of worthlessness or guilt, fixation on past failures, uh, trouble thinking, making choices, focusing or remembering, frequent thoughts and fixation on death and suicide, uh, and unexplained physical problems like back pain or headaches. And you all wonder why I'm so late all the time. I got the triple dicking of neurodivergence, anxiety disorder, and depression. And again, like with anxiety disorder, the big sad is okay to feel. Everyone gets depressed without having this disorder. The world's a goddamn dumpster fire, and we're probably li- and we're probably witnessing the last couple chapters of human history. But if your emotional state is constantly this bitch empty, or you've felt happiness less often than the blessed touch of the gender you're most attracted to, you might want to get checked out for this. And again, we don't really know why this happens, but it also runs in the family and can be made worse by your environment. And this accounts for 8.3% of the population. And finally, for the big three, that's not addiction, because addiction is a disease, and if you don't think so, you can twist a thorny dildo into your ass like a screw, is PTSD. Affecting 3.6% of Americans. Now, PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, is a long-term brain illness that rewires your entire dome piece after you witness something traumatic or being under a constant level of high stress for an extended period of time. Which is basically like just your brain trying to adapt to the circumstances, but since they're fucking nutter circumstances, you can't do it in a healthy way. Uh, and this disease has four branches, being intrusion, avoidance, alteration, cognition, and mood, and alteration in arousal and activity. For the intrusion symptoms, this includes recurring and unwanted memories of the event, reliving the event, upsetting dreams or nightmares about it, and severe emotional or physical distress towards reminders. For avoidance, this includes trying to avoid thinking, talking about, or going places that remind you of the event. Uh, Also, this is what trigger warnings are for, you fucking weird freaks out there that think trigger warnings are dumb. I hope your dick gets cracked in half and everyone laughs at your weird penis. Alterations in thinking and mood includes having negative thoughts about yourself and others, hopelessness, memory problems including not remembering important or notable aspects of the event, difficulty maintaining relationships, feeling detached from friends and family, lack of interest in activities you used to like, difficulty experiencing positivity, and feeling emotionally numb. And finally are alterations in arousal and activity like being frightened or startled easy, easily, always being on guard, self-destructive behavior, trouble sleeping or concentrating, irritability and angry outbursts or aggression, and overwhelming guilt or shame. Which, I know people with PTSD, it's really fucking rough on them because it's like almost constant even with their medications. And with all of that covered, and I've gotten you good invested in this, why should you be angry at America about this? A.K.A. The Issues Surrounding Mental Health Well, firstly, mental illness is on the rise, with a 14% increase in reported rates of sadness and hopelessness since 2011, and a 6% increase in attempted suicides, with some amount of this being due to the recent pandemic. The number of deaths, the pervasive fear, economic hardships and instability, distance and separation from community and loved ones, and a decrease. And a decrease in physical activity caused by massive spikes in mental illness diagnosis. Caused a massive spike in mental illness diagnosis. That is on top of once again the world being a dumpster fire. Politics being a clusterfuck. Being a clusterfuck. The politics being a clusterfuck of geriatrics like the least fun orgy sense since the Mansons. And being full of microplastic, lead, radiation, and the fumes from about 5,000 other poisonous vapors. So. You know, we're all pretty fucked up and it's not getting any better. And also, 54.7% of adults with mental illness don't receive treatment of any kind. Alongside the 93.5% of people with substance abuse disorders not receiving treatment either. As a matter of fact, of that, 28.2% tried to receive treatment, with 42% being unable to afford it. And yet again, another reason why I'm a socialist, 22.87% of Americans experience two weeks on average of mentally unhealthy days per month and were unable to see a doctor because of the cost. And of the youth and children, 57.3% that need help don't get help. And while a lot of this is because of stigma and cost, this is also because we don't have the providers necessary. There's only one in every 350 people in the U.S. But this includes providers that aren't accepting new patients and people who have been providers this year but have since stopped practicing. And because of this lack of professionals and also a lack of funding, only 0.7% of students receive supportive education programs to work with their illness. The entire mental health system is overtaxed and underfunded, just like everything else and our culture really doesn't help either, because it's created a system where we drive past fucking dumpster fires of a world that we live in, on our way to work, for most of our lives to get chewed up and spit out without so much as a thank you, without the money or time to be able to afford to feel happy or fulfilled, and just jumping from one sleep cycle to the next, hoping the next day isn't as shit as this one, and with the rise of the internet and perceived danger of the outside world feeling more and more isolated, So, holy shit, are we in a mental health crisis and it's only going to get worse. And it keeps getting worse. (sighs) Okay. So, let's talk about ways to fix this. So, let's start with solutions if you are living with a mental illness. There's things you can try to do to make your life a bit easier. So, first things first. Follow your motherfucking treatment plan, you goddamn trash goblin. After figuring out with your doctor and therapist, don't just stop taking your meds, therapy, and other tools without talking to them first. Just because the silly pills make you feel better doesn't mean you're cured and you can stop. They're the reason you feel better, you fucking himbo. Second, keep your primary care doctor, if you have one, update on what's good. The same with your therapist and any other professional support you're receiving. Not the homeless guy that you talk to about your mental problems. Don't talk to him about it. He doesn't care. He just humors you because he knows he gets a hot pocket out of it. Which I mean, fair. Uh, also, research your condition and make sure your support network is on the same page as you are with understanding your condition. Because sometimes it's Shit can just sneak up on you, and having a support network that knows how you get when you're spiraling is really helpful, believe me. Also, practice some self-care. Find stuff that makes you happy to manage stress, try to eat well and get some sleep, drink some of the cringe your mom calls water, and try to get outside once in a while and get some movement going. It'll all help with your mental health. Also, make sure to reach out and maintain strong relationships with people you care about. And we're social animals. We need a tribe to not feel like we're dying. And finally, develop some healthy coping skills. Because things that can take the edge off your condition without making it worse or giving you another change or some charges. So, no, not starting bar brawls, but if, you know, like fighting clears your mind, maybe join a boxing club. No chugging 40s alone in your basement, but go to therapy, you fucking clown. And also, again, Get enough sleep, I swear to God I will find you. Okay, so let's talk about some more like societal fixes. Firstly, we can increase funding for mental health facilities. I mean, think. Right now we're paying about $444 billion Washingtons a year in disability payment and lost productivity. Which isn't even accounting for caregiving or incarceration rates. Funding for mental health services are constantly under threat and pretty consistently gets cut. However, if we instead, wild fucking idea, increase that budget, then we'd actually end up paying less for incarceration, caregiving, disability, and lost productivity because people needing treatment would actually get it and could be a part of society again. Secondly, we should improve court-appointed care in prison, jails, and psychiatric hospitals because we're going to lock someone up because they're fucking nuts then shouldn't we be actually trying to fix what's wrong with them? Add on to that, the mental health care in prisons is a fucking joke when it does exist, but usually isn't even there. And if we had actual good mental health in prison, then what? Almost half of all inmates getting their shit fixed so they don't come back? Like, that's the point? I'm kidding, I know it's not the point. The point is to make money and torture black people. You know, that's like the NFL, the music industry. Anyways, third is that we can create community health centers and inpatient facilities. Basically, if we had a system of public mental health facilities that could serve as a way to keep people going, like if you're feeling like shit and all fucked out and you just need a place to go to stop from hitting a dark place, you can go to one of those places where professionals can look you over, make sure you're okay, maybe get you some meds or like a therapy wank, and then get out there and go on with your life without without interventive psychiatric care. Also, you know, supporting addiction services, employment programs, and family therapy, that would help a lot, too. Fourth, got to make care more compassionate and supportive, which is literally the most important thing we can do. Because we over-medicate people with mental illnesses because it's cheaper and easier, especially on a system that's already overburdened. So if we approach as a compassionate validation of people's experiences, and making them feel heard and listened to, and making them feel like they have a safety net of some sort, then, surprise, surprise, We'd find that a lot of their mental illnesses become a lot easier for them to manage, for doctors to treat, and for easier to manage patients, and creates better trust between the doctor and patient. Of course, meds are still necessary, but hey, trusting the process and feeling good about it is a massive part of recovery and management. Fifth, promote pathways to mental health care. Include a system of mental health education in schools so that people know when something is wrong with themselves or their loved ones and know where they can get help. Also, integrating mental health more a general medical care settings, like in hospitals and doctor's offices. And linking the homeless to places that offer supportive housing programs and more places for people that isn't fucking prison or a psych ward to receive care. And again, most of the time, prisons don't even have mental health care. Sixth, related to five, is that we need to improve mental health care in general. By strengthening regulations and enforcement around mental health, with stuff like setting universal standards of care, uh, insurance standards, and making sure it's on actual fucking insurance, and actually enforcing the rules that are already in place. Also, we should be reimbursing and paying for mental health facilities and establish evidence-based mental health crisis response teams rather than just using cops. Again, we need to stop using cops for everything. Also invest in early intervention strategies and grow our workforce For these services, including peer support programs, where professionals who have had problems in the past help people with their condition. Finally, of course, in this, we need to introduce a care continuum, where we share the information across mental health professionals and care facilities to make sure people are getting the care that they need. Also, osteopaths. The actual written solution that I've seen around are people talking about, like, assembling teams of NDs to examine, coordinate care for patients across every aspect of your life. But, I mean, you know from the medicine episode that's basically just an osteopath. So, yeah, like six allopaths or one osteopath. Kind of your choice. Uh, And finally, we need to admit something. This is on all of us. We are all responsible for making sure that the vulnerable people around us are getting the care that they need a compassionate, caring, person-first treatment, and to advocate for yourself as well, and to advocate even for the people you don't know. But with that, let's look real quick at the attitudes around mental health. Firstly, is the belief that mental illness is nothing to be ashamed of. And surprisingly to me at least, 87% of Americans believe that there's nothing to be ashamed of. And oddly, the lowest age group is actually young adults, with only 78% of Agreeing with this. I mean compared to 89% of adults. And 92% of seniors. And normally you'd. Hear that in reverse right? Okay. So I mean how do people feel about disorders? Well 86% of people. Believe people with disorders can get better. And 94.4% believe. They can be effectively treated and managed. Which is true. For a lot of disorders. You can never cure them. But they can absolutely get better. And you should try to get better. The same 86% of people believe that the term mental illness itself carries stigma about it. Which is fair, but I mean, what else are we going to call it? Getting kooky? Being a little nutty? Maybe a bit wacky? 81% of people would be comfortable being friends with someone mentally ill. You know, awards will be in the mail. 71% of people think that mental and physical health should be seen as equal, which, yes, absolutely yes. Surprisingly, though, only 96.8% of people think that they're medical conditions, which I think is dumb because clearly they are. And if you know what an illness is, and you assume a mental illness is an illness, shouldn't you assume that that's a medical condition? Because an illness is a medical condition where something, what the fuck ever, some people are dumb. 70% of people uh, know where to get help and 72% would get help if they felt like they need it. Uh, and by the way, go to therapy. You know you need it, you fuck. Also, I'm sure that's a lie. Uh, either that or the people I know for the most part that are just the fucking stubborn assholes for no reason who just refuse to get help ever. Like, sometimes I have my uh, a friend be like, hey, do you ever have a repressed memory come back that makes you cry and makes it impossible for you to do anything for three whole days and I'm like no that's never happened to me you should get therapy and they're like "Eh, nah but apparently I'm just friends with people that are just like stubborn pieces of shit for no reason and just really like to suffer uh also 59% of people know someone with a disorder however it's not all like positive helpful supportive information because 39% of people say that they would view someone differently if they knew they had a mental illness. And 33% of people say that people with disorders scare them. And for my thoughts on that, let's go to the soapbox. Alright, so as you can imagine, I have some thoughts about mental illness. Namely, suck it the fuck up, you coward. I did it, and I have a big bad podcast man that's living with his parents and is chronically late. Kidding, obviously. Rather, my thoughts are surprisingly mainstream. I think we should be taking mental health and mental illness seriously to be put on the same level as physical health and illness. Do I think the economy would collapse if we did? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because we're broken fundamentally as a society. Also, we live in a society... And we can't seem to operate without intentionally causing suffering and burnout to as many people as physically possible. I think people with mental illnesses shouldn't be judged for doing what they need to do to manage it. I think in general, if you have a rough spot with your mental health, that should be seen as the same as having a sick day. And the fact that there's still people that don't view it that way is infuriating. I mean, we in the U.S. have a long way to go to understand mental health and mental illness. And that's just the foundational parts of it. We have so much to do as far as treatment, recovery, and education. But we can't even figure out the basics. And I will say, as someone who's mentally ill, I can tell a lot of people in those opinions were fucking lying. I mean, full disclosure, I am highly at risk for having schizophrenia and have dealt with symptoms and warning signs my entire life. I have anxiety and depression. I probably have ADHD, if not autism. And when I tell someone I have anti-anxiety meds or antidepressants for the first time, a good three-quarters of the time they look scared, then disappointed, then judgmental, then scared again. Because no one receives proper education on anything mental illness that isn't a crime show. And schizophrenia is a good example. A lot of people assume schizophrenics are violent. But someone who's schizophrenic is 14 times more likely to be the victim of a crime, and only 10% of people with it ever commit an act of violence. And yet, when I've told people who were trusted friends that I probably have it, some of them never felt comfortable around me ever again. So we have a lot of work to do. And this time, I mean we. Because if you've made it this far, this is your call to action. Whoever you are, wherever you are, take care of yourself. Take accountability for your mental health and seek treatment. Work to improve your health and lifestyle, find Something to take the edge off this existential nightmare we're all living in. And I'll see you next episode until I get too old to see a computer screen or type with my arthritic fucking fingers. And you better show up. You're important and I can't do without you. Alright, let's go home. Alright. Interesting episode. Also, kind of throwback to the classics with it being a bit longer. I have no idea how I recorded those. My throat is torn up. Uh, anyways, if you have opinions, advice on how to make the show better, what mental illnesses you think are nifty, uh, hate mail from your psychiatrist aimed directly at me, and really anything else you want to tell me, make sure to email me at waytatpods at gmail.com. That is W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat Nerd, where I do basically the same thing, but with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc. I hope you'll like the topics just as much. Also, remember to follow me on Twitter at pause for more episode announcements. And also, again, uh, and also again, shout out to uh, Cherry City Studios. Uh, really, really appreciate the stickers. It's awesome. Uh, it feels really good seeing them in the back of my car. Um, but yeah, have a good night. Don't murder. Have fun, and remember, get some fucking therapy, you fuckwagon. This has been Why You're Talking About This, and I've been your host, William. Good night.